I'm Alex Green, and this is Stereo Embers, the podcast. Check this out. song called Paris, France by my guest today on the program, Louise Gothen. Let me tell you a little bit about Louise Gothen. Born in Brooklyn at the dawn of the 60s, Louise Gothen was raised in a house where the radio was always on. Now, you've probably heard other musicians echo that same sentiment about their lives growing up, but Gothen's situation was a little bit different than, well, than pretty much everyone else. Yes, the radio was always on, but what makes her upbringing so unique is that her parents pretty much wrote every song that was on it. Goffin's parents, Carol King and Jerry Goffin, were the architects of modern pop music. And growing up, Goffin had a front row seat of music history as it was unfolding. When her parents divorced in the late 60s, Goffin's mom took her two daughters from New York to L.A., and then they settled in Laurel Canyon, right up there in the Hollywood Hills. Who else lived there, you ask? Well, let's just say this. The neighbors were pretty fucking cool. Here were some of them. Jim Morrison, Frank Zappa, Mickey Dolenz, Neil Young, and Joni Mitchell. Had it been 40 years earlier, Harry Houdini would have been a neighbor as well. He actually rented a home there around 1920. So, as you can see, unlike the rest of us, Louise Goffin could never accuse her mom of not having cool friends. For example, my mom's coolest friend was Kathy Sailing. She played oboe, and she taught a class on macrame down at the community center. I think you get the idea. Okay, back to our story. In 1974, Goffin and her sister Sherry sang backup vocals on Nightingale, a number on Carole King's Wraparound Joy album. Louise sang again on King's Really Rosy record in 1975 and again on 1977's Simple Things. Now, Goffin grew up listening to everyone from David Bowie to Joe Walsh, and even though she remembers being blown away by meeting Neil Young as a kid, it probably wasn't as nerve-wracking as when she made her 1977 live debut at the age of 17 
opening for Jackson Brown. Nerve-wracking as it may have been, she crushed it, and not long after, she signed to Elektra. Two years later, her debut album, Kid Blue, hit shelves, and Goffin's career had begun. She followed that up with a 1981 self-titled effort, and in 1982, she became the youngest contributor to the Fast Times at Ridgemont High soundtrack with a song called Uptown Boys. In 1984, Goffin moved to London, and she spent the next 10 years there, setting up a home studio and learning, in her words, how records work. She signed to the Stiff label, which had Elvis Costello and Nick Lowe on its roster, and she began writing songs at a furious clip. The album This Is The Place came out in 1988, but it would take 14 more years for the next record to see the light of day. Now, I'm not checking on your math, but if you heard me say that and you said to yourself, wait a second, that means Goffin didn't put a record out in the 90s. Well, you would be right. But that didn't mean she was teaching macrame down at the community center. She was always writing songs and attending songwriting workshops and constantly working on her craft. Oh, and I almost forgot. During that time period, she also picked up a few side gigs. She played guitar on Tears for Fears' 1997 tour, and she played banjo with Brian Ferry. Not too shabby. You know who else she's collaborated with? Me. That's right. This is her second appearance on the program, and this conversation typifies one of the many things that I love about talking to Louise Goffin. Now, this is a long chat. I'll admit it but I've broken it up into two episodes, and the first part is a great example of how Louise is eternally interested in the craft of songwriting. And it's a subject I love talking about with her because she's really willing to break it down. Like a chess master who still studies the board, Goffin has an evergreen fascination with how songs work. She knows how the pieces slide across the board, but she's always constantly thinking about new moves they can make. Okay, that's like the worst chess analogy ever, but you get the point. Goffin is in love with the craft of songwriting, and she finds its triumphs and its frustrations to be equally fascinating. So, part one is essentially a craft talk, and part two is totally different. That's next week. This episode, we talk about her new album, which is called All These Hellos, her podcast, which is called The Great Song Adventure, and what it was like to work with Chris Difford of Squeeze. It's a great chat, but with Louise Gothen, it always is. She's loose and funny and thoughtful and utterly charming. And her new album is incredible. We'll talk about that on the other side of the interview. But for now, let's welcome Louise Gothen back to the program, shall we? Enjoy this conversation right here on Stereo Embers, the podcast. Alex, how are you? I think we should only talk once a year. It should be like our uh, our new ritual, our new tradition. Has it been a year? It's been, it's been about a year. Wow. I love that interview we did before. Oh, I did too. And so did our listeners. It's one of our best episodes. We listeners said it was one of your best episodes? Yeah, it's one of our highest uh, rated episodes. People, people listen to that thing a lot. That's amazing. I'm so happy to hear that. It was a great interview and I... Yeah. Yeah. Well, it, here we are again. And here we are again. And and uh, it's also one of those things where we talked, and uh, and I've thought about the things that you were saying. I've been thinking about them for the last year. Interesting. That's great. 
Yeah. Well, I want to know in what ways. The idea that lyrics are percussive, you know, that, that, uh, you know, that, that, that sort of phrasing has a percussive element to it. I've, I've not been able to stop thinking about that. Oh, that's, yeah, that's a definite thing. I like, I like percussion in lyrics. Yeah. And I was thinking about who is and who isn't. Anyway, it was great. It really, it really changed how I felt about things. And then I interviewed uh, Inara George and Petra Hayden, both, uh, both fans of yours. And we talked about that a little bit with them and it was great. It was a very resonant interview. Cool. So, um, it's great. You interviewed Inara. Oh, she's, isn't she great? Mm-hmm. She's marvelous. Um, and Petra is something else too. Everybody's great. Uh, how was your year? Say that. How's my year been? Yeah. <laughs> uh, hold on. Let me finish chewing. Uh, I won't eat on the interview. You can eat. My breakfast. My breakfast at noon. The year, well, it was great. And it was really fun to bring the record together. And, you know, get all the final mixes and tweaks. And I've been making a lot of videos, actually, since I spoke to you. I started last year just putting together things like lyric videos uh, and got more into editing. And I realized it was something that I enjoyed doing. It's very time consuming, but, you know, it didn't really make sense. It doesn't make sense as as an indie artist to pay all this money to make a video for all the songs. And I always like having videos for songs. It's, It's hard to get people to listen to things without visuals. Too. I mean, I don't even really, you know, the only time I really do that is in the car, you know, maybe at the gym or something, but it's such a visual medium, you know, the, the kind of songs that I do. So I always wanted to have visuals for things and thought, eh, you know, I'm going to start making my own videos. So I started doing that. And I also started a podcast. Uh, I guess it started about the springtime. A year ago, I did a, I do master classes once in a while, songwriting master classes, and I, and I intend to do more of them. But I did one a year ago at Village Recording Studios, and I asked Paul Zolo, author and songwriter and photographer Paul Zolo, to be a special guest at the songwriter class. And then that went really well. And then afterwards, one of the volunteers, I must call this volunteer and thank him, <laughs> and suggested in the parking lot as I, was, as I was carrying things to my car, you know, to leave for the day, he said, you should start a podcast. And I was like, really? Podcast? I don't know, really, what would that be? Yeah, he said, podcasts are cool. You could do a great pod- podcast. And I thought, oh, that's Paul. Maybe he wants to do one together. And he did, you know, he, he was up for it. So we just went into, you know, pro action mode and we interviewed Van Dyke Parks and the motels and Sandy Korchmar and Lou Adler. And, you know, we've had a lot of great interviews and he had lots of archives on cassette from interviews he'd done for his book. So he had audio 
of interviews with Tom Petty and Leonard Cohen, people who have passed, uh, Chrissy Hine. I mean, he's got so many because he's been doing this for over 30 years. So we were also including the archival interviews along with new ones we were doing. And it's been great. I've been learning so much just talking to all these incredible songwriters and musicians and producers and, and and mostly from an earlier time, you know, but it, it reminds me of why I love doing this and taking some of the energy from an earlier time like that. Sorry, there's a plane going overhead right now. So loud. It's so far away. too. <laughs> crazy. The way sound travels is a crazy thing. Uh, yeah, it's, it's been a year of expansion, really. Um, and I just started a foundation. I just started the Goffin and King Foundation, which is, is going to help with giving opportunities for education and music with songwriting to people who are you know, maybe can't afford it and do songwriting retreats and have, you know, be able to sponsor a limited number of people to be able to participate in writing with, you know, more established songwriters and get their works and careers onto a, a bigger stage than, you know, whatever town they're able to afford to stay in. So that's something I'm working on too, and I hope to be able to do a a songwriting retreat in 2019. I like the idea that you are so proactive and so busy, and yet you also eat breakfast at 12. (laughs) (laughs) Well, yeah, you know, it's turned out like my breakfast ends up being coffee, and then lunch ends up being breakfast, and it's not good. There's a lot there's a lot I still need to straighten out in my life, which is routine. <laughs> I I mean I really cherish organization and order and routine and consistency. Like these are things I highly value and I don't manage them. <laughs> and I don't because I do too much. That's that's really what it comes down to. You can't somebody once said to me, you can't you can't pour a pint of milk into a half pint glass. <laughs> no, it's going to spill over. And that's, that's what happens in my life a lot. I, I want to get in everything, you know, I want to do all the projects I want to do and I want to exercise and I want to eat well and I want to, you know, organize and declutter and, live my environment with essentialism and not have extra stuff I don't need sitting around taking up room. And it's just any one of those things that I just said for me can take up half a day and then the day is gone. So, you know, I'm a work in progress. (laughs) I can, I can relate. I find, uh, or do you find that you're better at your craft and your passion and your creative pursuits than you are in like daily life? Uh, I think that's true with most artists, but I don't think it's true with me because 
at this stage in my life, I have a lot of responsibility and I think I can own that I'm good at it. I think I handle my responsibilities well. Um, I've always been a little over-responsible, actually. I want to get back to what you described, <laughs> what you said, I'm better at all those other things than I am. I kind of would like to get better at those artistic pursuits only and prioritizing them because, you know, I have really young parents. So one of the, there's lots of benefits of that, but one of the downsides, of that is that you end up being a little adult because you kind of like I had teenagers as parents and you, you know, kids are perceptive and it made me think, Oh, I better take care of myself and set my own rules because they're not setting any, (laughs) they don't have consistent schedules and, you know, they're focused on other things in their careers. And, you know, I, I had kids much older, so I, was more responsible and you know I didn't have I didn't have parents who were kid-centered by a long shot they were everything but kid-centered it's like they were themselves centered and the kids can kind of just come along for the ride and if it was the ride had ups and downs well so be it and our culture now and especially being an older parent you know you, you try to get your life in a stable situation so that you can have kids be in that world. You don't want to take your kids on the up and down roller coaster of being an artist. So, um, yeah, you know, it's interesting. One of the the things on my pledge music campaign, which wasn't, it wasn't a let's pay for the record because the record was already done. It was a pre-sale, you know, Hey, I've got vinyl. (laughs) Want some? Uh, (laughs) And it was fun. You know, there was some fun exclusive, but one of the things on it was a, and I think I added it later, was a outtakes and demos CD, you know, compilation of outtakes and demos and, you know, just the the real behind the scenes raw stuff. And I was so shocked like when I put that up as an exclusive almost as many people got that as the new CD and and more people got that than got the vinyl it's very interesting statistically so all of a sudden I'm in this position of like whoa I gotta make a lot of these CDs and I'm going through you know my oldest computer and looking at cassette tapes that maybe I need to like make digital and figuring out what to put on this. I mean, I could literally do a box set of outtakes and demos, maybe double box set, but right now it's one CD. And I was listening to all these things I used to do. And a lot of it was in the nineties. Um, a lot of it stuff when I lived in London and it was so exciting to listen to because I thought, I want to be her again. <laughs> I remember her you know, she didn't think about anything other than making music all day long. That's all I did. I had a studio in my flat and I was just obsessed with writing songs. And I, and I have to say my priorities were definitely in order. I suffered a lot being artist first and, you know, business second. I always felt under noticed, you know, um, People, you know, my songs weren't like hit songs and 
I just felt like I was in my own sandbox for so many years, just entertaining myself and like, how do I get it out there? And then when I would get it out there, it would sound nothing like the stuff I would do on my own. It would be more polished. And, you know, I was constantly struggling with the frustration of how to interface my artistic world with the music business as it existed. And, you know, now I can say I'm happy that both meet because the world has changed and I've become better skilled, you know, the, the two combined. But when I was listening to all this, I, you know, I was thinking, I love these lyrics and, you know, it was, it was I, I liked the work. And I remember thinking, ah, you know, another sad, melancholic song. I had so many sad, melancholic, slow songs. But they were lovely. I mean, they, they just hearing them now, you know, just in another context of another time, I found it just nice to hear. And I just said, well, you know, how do I get back into her, you know, have more of her in my life, that version of me. So that's on my to-do list is just to not have a day where I'm just so uber responsible you know, I have to talk to the gardener. I got to get the fence that fell down, rebuilt, you know, <laughs> all that kind of stuff. I don't want my, I don't want my days taken up with that so much and be growing as an artist, doing things, you know, out of my comfort zone and exploring different avenues. Why why was she so sad? I mean she had all this freedom. We're talking about you as a third per as a in the second person, third person uh, we we keep switching over, but she meaning your former self uh had all that time to be artistic and and that should be a joyful experience. Why do you think the songs were so sad? Um was it do you think that this the, the age that you were? No, it was well, first of all, I had a lot of unresolved things psychologically, which is all, you know, which is why artists exist. You know, we all write songs to just work out our demons and our insecurities and our childhoods and, you know, our relationships. Um, you know, there was, there was just a lot of that, you know, a lot of breakups. <laughs> and, um, yeah, and I, and I also felt like, I never liked, I always liked structure. Like, I'm a weirdo. I don't know a lot of artists who are like this, but I liked going to school. My mom liked school, too. I mean, I always liked learning, and I always liked the structure of I'm going to class and I have an assignment, and I like things that I know what the parameters are and I can pour myself in them. And, I mean, actually, I, Stravinsky said that he thought that music was better structured because you can pour things into them where unstructured isn't as useful. And even, you know, I think he also said something about silences, like what makes music special is the silences in between the notes. So for me, having all, you know, having a record deal and having all this time to write and be at home I just didn't feel like my feet were on the ground. Like I just always felt like I was going to float away and I didn't like it. I wanted 
I like it better when I have to be somewhere <laughs> and then I can fit my music in and go, oh, I have to be somewhere in the morning and then I'm going to, you know, meet this person. We're going to write a song from this time at this time. And I, and I always write best when it's scheduled like that. So when it's just you and your recording gear and you have endless time to just indulge in this idea and that idea and nobody hears it but you and it's not commercial and you're not recording it. Um, there's no demand for the music because no one's heard it yet. Like all of that. I hated all of that. It just filled me with constant anxiety. <laughs> I'm laughing now, but it, it, it's the truth. And I'd be sad a lot. I would just be wondering like, you know, who am I and where am I going? <laughs> yeah. uh, so, you know, I, I actually accomplish more when I have more to do and less time to do it. Yeah, I, I'm finding that too. So, you know, the more the more pressed I am for time, the more productive I am. And in, and in the opposite, I find myself wasting so much time that my big accomplishment for the day is maybe mailing a letter. Well, yeah, I relate to that too. I mean, sometimes I say my biggest accomplishment today was the time I wasted enjoyably. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's a terrible thing to waste somebody else's time. Like, that's disrespectful. If you waste someone else's time, that's just not cool. But if you waste your own time and enjoy while you're wasting it, I think you got to give yourself a break, you know? And I think also psychically when I so-called waste time, you know, like watching an episode of something on Netflix would fall under the category of wasting time. But if you're wasting time enjoyably, I think it's a psychic rest, you know, because we do so much, we have to analyze and figure things out and make decisions. And it's sometimes nice to just empty the brain and just, you know, kind of, oh, look, a bird flew over there, <laughs> you know? Yeah. It, it gives you a psychic rest, and, and, and I think under the surface, things are being worked out anyway, even though it feels like you're not doing anything productive. I and mean, you can't just be productive all the time. People need less time. Oh, I totally agree. And let, let's talk about structure and craft, because if your day is structured, it's easier to find the time to create. And then if we apply that to craft... So if you are, if you're writing a song and you've got the song organized, you've, you know, the structure, then it's easier to produce the emotion uh, or pour the emotion into the structure. Like you would like almost like a recipe of some kind. Yeah. Well, I have that right now. Um, somebody gave me a track and I don't do a lot of collaborating because it's just too time consuming and you know, in, unless I'm working with an artist who's going to record something or a producer who I know is going to record something, I just feel like I'm spending my entire day doing something. I don't know. It, it just, it's not a good expenditure of my time because I have plenty of songs that are sitting around on my hard drive and I don't need more. You know what I mean? Right. But unless it's people that I write with on a regular basis or someone I'm really excited to write with just, you know, to see, Hey, what would happen if we cross pollinated on a song? You know, sometimes it's a chemistry thing and, and almost always it is a chemistry thing. 
is it too noisy? Somebody's just set off a, I'm sitting outside, but I just heard some crazy like tree cutter. Is it too loud? Oh, no, no, you're fine. You're totally fine. Okay. Yeah. So someone just gave me a track to write a top line, you know, lyrics and melody over it. And I, I'm, I'm excited about the assignment. Let's see. Okay. This is, this is high praise that I've been given this job. You know, it, it's still spec. I mean, they have to like it, but that's something in my day today. I'm going to sit down and I'm going to do that and see what comes out. I have no idea what will come out. I honestly don't know. And when you say the structure of a song in terms of the craft, I rarely go into any song with any sense of structure at all. It's always a blob of clay when I start. And I don't know what's going to come out ahead of time. But I know that once anything comes out, whatever the shape or lack of shape it is, that I'm like a laser beam to take away that which doesn't work and refine the parts that do work. So, you know, I feel like a lot of my songwriting is editing the the thing that's been given to me. Like usually I sit down at the piano or the guitar or I'm singing over a track and something just drops, like melodies just drop or chords will drop and maybe phrases will drop or phonetic phrases that don't mean anything will drop. And then the job of songwriting for me is the palette of taste. You know, I like this. I don't like this. Let me chase that. Or what would happen if I put this to there? You know, that's where the songwriting comes in. And it doesn't feel like work because it feels like, oh, just get rid of the stuff you don't like. <laughs> you know, like if I know I made a lot of cooking references the last time you talked. <laughs> um, it, it's like decluttering the song. You know, it's like okay, I have a I have a table surface here, and there's too much on the table, and I'm gonna eat dinner whatever it is, or I have people over and I want them to sit without looking at all my papers and computers and headphones and whatever it is and bills, I'm going to clear off the surface. And then you look at the table and you go, yeah, that's the place I want to sit. You know, so the song is really, what is this extra bit doing here? That doesn't do anything. Or I need a break here. It's repeating this and I want it to go up in a different area. And that, that's to me where the craft comes in is just, understanding the moment of expression that needs to come out. You know, it's emotionally, I need it to lift here. What, where does it have to go to lift from this place? But the starting place is never from me. It's always given as a gift. That's how I see it. How are you with, and, you know, yeah, sorry. I was going to say, and, I realize, you know, part of my palette is I just, I don't like computers. I mean, I love computers for everything, but when I hear music and the timing is computer perfect and the tuning is computer perfect and things are looped, I mean, I like plenty of loops. But nowadays, I just, it's just something that shuts off in my listening like subconsciously I know something's going to repeat and I know it's going to happen in the same place every time, like metronomically, I just stop hearing it anymore. And I try to explain this to 
my son who uses a lot of loops and he uses them brilliantly, but I, I just keep saying like a, no pun intended, like a broken record. I'm the loop repeating. I just keep saying, what would happen if you wrote the song first on piano or guitar and music and didn't use a loop and then recorded it and put all these sounds on after you had the song. But, you know, a lot of people get inspired from the loop and the songs. And often to me, they're like trances rather than songs because they, they don't melodically go into a new chord structure or they don't have those things that I call scene changes. I love a scene change in a song and sometimes they have them and sometimes there'll be a break in the middle of the looped thing. They'll suddenly go boom, you know, the drums get muted, the bass gets muted and new sounds come in. But melodically, it often doesn't happen. How are you with, in, in terms of being like, you know, the editor and the creator? You know, that sort of like you create and then you have to sort of, you know, get that editorial distance and then you have to be the editor who has to sort of judiciously decide if the choices were right. And you keep going from one place to the next. Are you good at switching roles? Can you do it almost simultaneously now? I'm really good at switching roles. It's never good if it's simultaneous. I don't think they happen at the same time for me. I'm really good at letting my messy, so to speak, my messy child go out and play and make mess. And I'm kind of in the background, like the, you know, the parents going, okay, go, go do your thing, go make a mess. And, you know, my lyrics, they're never written in like straight lines. They're like all over the page on several pages and circles and on the side and written really sloppily and, you know, then I'll circle things and rewrite them out. Or sometimes I never rewrite them out. Sometimes it's like, hey, does anyone have a lyric for this that they wrote on computer? And it's like, <laughs> no, I better listen to the song and write them out. But yeah, I tend to start off that way. And then I go into my editing mode, which I think I'm, I'm probably 80 time, 80 parts editor and 20 parts, you know, mess, which is a pretty good ratio. I think I used to have, like, when I say I want to go back to her, <laughs> meaning my younger self in London, I think she was way bigger ratio of make a mess and less editing ratio. We didn't, I, didn't, I didn't have things to edit for. Um, I think I was just really in an exploratory stage of, you know, just keep recording, keep writing, keep trying new things. It was a way I was learning. I was studying every aspect of not just songwriting, but arrangements. Like, what, what, you know, what happened if I did this kind of a bass line or accompanying myself? But yeah, I don't think they happen at the same time. Well, Sometimes it'll be a little thing, like you'll see it as you write it. Right. Ooh, this is going to be useful later. You know, I can see that this this is going somewhere, but I don't really put that hat on until I've already done all the, you know, crazy painting. Well, like when I go back and I look at stuff I wrote in college, like poetry or whatever it might be, I'm I'm horrified. I totally understand where the artistic impulse 
was going and why it was going that way. And, and I get it, but I'm, and I can see sort of the bones of what became my future aesthetic, but like for the most part, you know, those things are, they're not usable to me. Um, I love the fact that you in London, sad as you were, uh, you, you left ideas that the future you could actually revisit and, and do something with. Yeah. Well, we'll see when people get the outtakes, <laughs> you know, I'm sure there'll be, a, I mean, there may be a couple of things that fans who followed me for a while may have heard already, or they got at some point, you know, a demo or two, but I, um, I mean, there's some, yeah. And there's songs later. There's one song called, why am I here? Why am I here? Like the whole thing is just like, <laughs> you know, it's like at that moment where you think, you know, why am I even here? Like, what is my life? Um, and it was, why am I here even though you're miles away was the lyric. And the first line is about, like, a suicide tire swing. <laughs> you know, I, I know where that came from, actually. I, um, when I was growing up in Laurel Canyon, there was a tire swing that we used to call the suicide swing because it was over this, ravine um between like two hills and you would get the tire swing and you'd climb up one side of the hill and then you jump down you know and it was a long way down at the bottom <laughs> you know you just get in the swing you were really trusting that rope so i know i know that that's where it came in but you know at this point in my life like i'm very uncomfortable when i hear the word suicide in a lyric at all it's just you know it's depressing, yeah. <laughs> but I used it in this lyric, um, and it's a really song, it's a really sad song, a really sad lyric, but it's really well done and really melodic and, uh, you know, poetic and lyrical. Um, so, yeah, there's these things around, and then some of that, there was this one song called Anything at All, Um how will I feel? How do you know that I mean what I say? How will you feel if it's taken away? You know, um, you know, cause you know, you don't know anything at all. And then it switches it to, you know, how will I, how do I know that you mean what you say? How will I feel if it's taken away? I know, cause I know, I don't know anything at all. And, you know, then I would have been like, what the hell are you talking about? <laughs> you know, but now I'm going, oh, you know, that's pretty profound and pretty cool. Anyway, sometimes being sensible doesn't pan out over the long term. It may pan out in the, more, in the moment, you know. Oh, I'm going to stick with the sense of safety. I want to make sure it's something people understand and can relate to. But... You know, taking those risks and doing something that may feel abstract in that moment, over time, you go back and go, wow, that was, that was adventuresome. Meet me at the summer house, just the way you always did. I'll hang your clothes on a fishing pole.
sounds like the version of you in London was also making good use of time. I mean, it sounds like she was very prolific. I was prolific, but then I didn't frame it or value it that way at all. Because what I now see in retrospect is I was, um, well, what musicians will call woodshedding. You know, it's like the guitar player that sits in their room and plays to you know, Jimi Hendrix records or something, and they're learning their riffs. And in the moment, you might say, that kid does nothing but sit in their room playing guitar all day and doesn't do schoolwork and, you know, is wasting their time. And then you can only reframe that once someone is productive. You go, wow, that really wasn't a waste of time. All that time you spent in your bedroom doing that, you were really getting great. You know, that's why you're so great. Um, but at the time, I really felt like I was just wasting time. That's what it felt like. I was wrong. I was actually, you know, it was a lack of faith. It was a lack of faith that, well, what I'm doing is actually going to be really valuable later. I am really going to know how arrangements are put together, and I'm learning every aspect of, you know, a bass line, a drum part. And I really had no idea how to make records, but just clueless. I was, I had a eight track, half inch, reel to reel. <laughs> I think I had um, digital. Performer is, I think, what it was then. Oh no, it was in England. They called it. They had Cubase. It was the same thing, you know. It was you were able to program beats in, and I had really like shitty samples, <laughs> so the drums would all sound <laughs> awful and have no human feel whatsoever. Except the Lin drum machine. The Lin drum machine had great feel, and I think I did have a Lin drum at one point. And Prince used a Lin drum on almost. Everything in the eighties he did. I mean it was and it was purposely programmed to be human like that. But yeah, for the most part things were kind of disconnected. You know, I didn't know how to make it all come together, amalgamate so much, you know, which I do now. Um, but I I'm I tend more to live musicians than program bass parts and drums and all of that now. I like I like live musicians playing and I like the breathing. And to me, that, that's the kind of music that I always loved and it's the kind of music that lasts over time. But yeah, I, and sometimes too, I go, well, people, for example, I'm doing this Great Song Adventure podcast and in interviewing people, Songs that are classics, that have become classics, bands that have become iconic, you know, moments in history that have, are just so iconic. When you talk to the artists and the songwriters about the moment they wrote that song, nobody knew that it was going to be a classic song where people would play it 50 years later at the time, you know? And then I feel that we need to remind ourselves in this moment when we're doing something we really don't know its value in the moment we're doing it. It's not for us to decide. I mean, even Martha Graham has that famous quote about, you know, dancing and, and artists that it is not us to, it's not for us to decide the value of what we're creating. It's for other people to decide 
our job is to create it and then let it go. And it's other people's job to decide its value and take it from there, you know, interpret it. We just, we're just a channel. So, you know, this, I mean, artists generally, they're under earners. They struggle with self-esteem. They struggle with, you know, feeling less than, I mean, because artists are on the fringe of society, you know, society wants degrees and jobs with healthcare and a specified salary. And, you know, our society doesn't generally reward or respect entrepreneurial. They, they do once there's a success story, but, you know, we live in a society that wants to see the the spreadsheet in the black and then only then it's like, Hey, it was a good idea of you doing that. It was a great song you wrote this years ago. Look how many records it sold. But in that moment, there's no support. And in the head of an artist, there's the least amount of support because we're carrying around the societal beliefs. We're carrying around this, is this ever going to amount to anything? Or, you know, I haven't got two pennies to rub together or, you know, I don't have a real job. All these things that we're fighting in the moment of writing a song, we have to turn those voices down to actually write it. And when I say I want to get back to her, that's what I'm talking about. It's like turn off or turn down the voice because, oh, you have a meeting. Oh, you have to go do this. Oh, you have to call the gardener. Oh, you have to, you know, fix that thing. You know, all those grown-up things that take up the creative time to just really be in flow. And that that's what happens. That's when it stops being work. And that's why making an appointment to waste time can lead to something valuable. Yeah, because a lot of our listeners are young, aspiring musicians, and you know you have to put the time in. I mean, it, it's something. It's one of those things where you can't be good at your craft until you work at it. It doesn't just come, you know, magically to be the editor, to be the creator. All those things are hard earned. They're hard earned, and and yes, it's true. I mean, my bottom line for becoming masterful at anything is the more you love it, the better you'll be at it. And in order to love what you do, you, you want to be in it all the time. It's like, you can't, you can't be married to somebody that you only see like once in a while, you know, yeah. you're really going to love someone. You, you really need to know them intimately and share a lot. Right? So you have to invest in the relationship. If you want songs to give back to you, you have to invest in your relationship with your songs. If you just like pop in once in a while and say, I don't know why the writing isn't better. Like you, you, you want to live in it. You want to know everything about that song. And figure, you know, really know it intimately and go, well, I don't know. You know. If somebody brings up a syllable in your song, I'm not really sure why you have that there. You don't want to go, what syllable where? 
you want to go, oh, yeah, I've been down that road. I know that. And here's why it's there. You know, or I ask myself the same question. You want to be intimately familiar with the terrain of the work that you're doing. And if you're not, you might as well turn into a consumer because that's just like a shopping mentality. Like, you know, I'm going to take a class. I'm going to do this. I'm going to buy a guitar. I'm going to write some songs. And where's, you know, you're product oriented. I want a record. I want a record deal. Or I want, you know, you have to get out of the want part of all of it and just look at it like, you know, your bedfellows with your your music. You, you, it's it's your soul. You wanna you wanna live intimately with your work. Yeah, and you can also. I think that you can absorb criticism in a much better way if you do that. Because if you don't. I mean, how are you with taking a note? I mean, can you take a note? I mean, are you are you pretty good with that, or do you get upset? It's really it's all about the who, the when, and the delivery. I don't like unsolicited advice, um, and I have to remember that when I'm the one giving it. <laughs> Me too. You know, it's it, it's some people will just have an opinion, and. For example, if I release a record and it's released and somebody has to comment that they don't like, like it could be mixed better or something like that. It's just like, who are you? And if you have nothing nice to say, don't say anything. It's like, you think I'm going to go back and remix my record because (laughs) you're making this comment? Or do you think that, do you think I wasn't present when I made the decision to love this mix and put it on the record? It's like all those things come to mind when it's unsolicited criticism. It, it, it's really a thing I say, consider the source of it. It's important. And what is someone's motive in giving you that criticism? Is it to inflate themselves? Is it to, you know, it really it really matters where the source is and what the timing is and whether it improves anything. Criticism for a finished work is really to me just okay, whatever. You didn't like it, okay, so listen to something else. You know, that's right. how I feel. If I say, I got this song, I'm really not sure what to do here, what do you think? You know, and someone says, Oh, I see, you don't you don't even need that verse. You've got you've got plenty of sections already. You don't even need that section entirely. I don't say I say thank you, you know, or I might say, oh, but I really like that line, and I really want to use it somewhere. You know, sometimes having constructive criticism that's asked for makes you clearer how you feel, because if you can stand up to it and go, no, no, I don't want to do that, or no, I attended that. I, that's there for a reason then you're stronger in your view because somebody sh- shines the light in a different angle. Um, but generally I'm not so great with criticism. You know, it's, I'm hard enough on myself with other people <laughs> giving their two cents when I'm not asking for it. You know, I mean, you walk up to a person and say, hey, and so what do you think of me? <laughs> you don't want to know, right? Right. Well, I mean, you're, you really you're don't want to like, know what people think of you. No, I mean, it's kind of like, don't beat me up. I'm doing it myself. Yeah, exactly. 
Uh, I, I'm with you with criticism. I always feel I know the weak spots, even even when I, I'm reluctant to admit it. I eventually will come around and take those spots out, but I, I can identify them, I think, without anyone you know sort of pointing them out to me. Yeah, it's it's not having other people point them out to you is not useful. And it's also, it never works when you're making some change or so-called improvement because it, it was externally motivated, you know? I mean, I, I just see it with my own kids. You know, doing better at school has no juice behind it whatsoever. It's, oh, I have to do this to please my parents, or I have to do this to not get a D, or, you know, whatever the reason is, is if it's externally motivated, it's, it's not really authentic. And, you know, if, if it's something like, oh, wow, I wrote this story, and it feels really good, and I wrote this great story, and, you know, it, it's, it's different than you're doing it to please someone or you're doing it because you feel like you're not enough if you don't do it and you have to do it to get people off your back or not feel ashamed of yourself. Like shame is a terrible motivation. I'm doing this to avoid feeling shame, you know? <laughs> yeah, that's a that's terrible, like, that's, that's a terrible way to live. Yeah. And so, you know, I think the best way to be with other people and kids and students and all of that is to just don't go around shady people, <laughs> you know, don't go around saying, you know, so you really thought that this would satisfy as a paper. You didn't do this. You didn't do that. You know, I mean, it's just inspiring is to me the way to go, you know, turning people on, shining a light on, you could be this, you could do this, or this is an interesting, this is an interesting uh, possibility in your work that I would love to see expanded on more in this song. Or when you said that line, I really felt something and then it didn't come back again. And I could hear that. I could hear the whole song be about that line. I could hear that line beat the chorus and, you know, just, Shining a light and inspiring to me is is the whole purpose of educating and teaching. That's what I like. You know, those are the teachers that I like. Yeah, those are the ones I remember too. I mean, when you're hosting the podcast and you're talking to, I'm assuming you talk to Martha from the motels or or Van Dyke mm -hmm. Parks. Are you finding yourself being inspired? Uh, not that they're your teachers, but there is a sort of teacher-like moment where you're learning from them. Do you find that you are getting inspiration from what they're revealing about the craft? Totally. I mean, I do the editing, the audio editing, and I'm just so, like, I have to take out the coughs and the mouth noises. Like, I'm so perfectionist about it. It's just like, I don't want to hear mouth noises and chewing and coughing and sniffling and you know the the older the older people you know and they say you know that record uh what's his name uh you know, like, <laughs> the listeners won't need to listen to the big long uh waiting to remember the name of the person 
and I make it, I try to make it sound totally like you would never know that there was any time taken out. But so, so my point is, is I'm listening to these in depth over and over again. I'm doing the interview itself and then I'm listening to them before they're even posted so many times. And it's really humbling. I mean, Martha Davis talked a lot about show tunes and melody and that she's always been melody driven and and kind of show tune driven. She thinks in terms of, you know, how she would how they'd sing it on a stage, you know, in a performance and this kind of theatrical thing. And I, I, I always think of her as such a great singer. And she said she never really thought of herself as a singer. Like a singer was just kind of secondary. It was all about writing melodies. And that was inspiring to me, you know, well, how often do I just sit in a chair? I don't even play the piano and just think, what could the melody be? You know, just the melody and have it all driven by that. And, you know, we interviewed Mike Stoller recently and, you know, he just had this lateral way of thinking about things. And I loved, and I was really inspired by the fact that he and Mike Stoller and Jerry Lieber decided at a point in their career that they were going to have to be producers to produce the songs they wrote because they couldn't write songs and give them to the record company and have someone else produce them because they would end up not sounding the way they wanted them to sound in order to protect the excellence of what they were doing. They needed to become producers and, you know, that, that was also an education, you know, they were able to, what they ended up doing is getting characters. They had like the coasters. They had people who would be characters who would be able to sing the songs they wrote, like a band of characters and voices. And, and, and that was inspiring to me. I thought, well, you know, I ended up doing the songs I write, but it might be cool to have people, you know, like that was what Motown was, you know, it was a collective of, different artists and a group of writers and, you know, it was everything mixed together. And, and I find that inspiring. It's, I just get ideas talking, you know, talking to some of these people and, and hearing even the archive. Um, what about Chris Difford? Tell me about that guy. That guy's always fascinated me and you guys work so well together. I love this song. Well, that, I mean, it's, it's just so crazy because, I met Chris like 30 years ago in London when I first got to London. Like I was, you know, I was in my early twenties and had been in London maybe a couple of months and I never planned on staying in London. It was always going to be like a 10 day trip, but I just kept staying and staying and staying. And I had a record company and, you know, I just, I had, more going for me in London than I had in LA and it was exciting. And so I kept staying and I was set up by Dave. I was signed to Stiff Records and Dave Robinson's assistant. Her name was Annie Holloway. 
She said, oh, you've got to, you should fight with Chris Stifford, you know? I was like, okay. So she sent me up and I took a, I took a bus down to Devon. It was very rainy. Um, (laughs) I was in the coast, you know, going to the South England coast in like the rainiest season. Um, And I don't even remember once I got there, I remember going there and I remember the song titles of lyrics he gave me, but he, he doesn't collaborate in the room. He writes lyrics and gives them to you. So I don't remember all the music I wrote to those titles. I don't even know if I did write music to some of them. I remember this, the titles and I remember one of the songs was music I had and a title and he wrote lyrics, you know, to kind of flesh it out. And then I didn't see him and we did that and I didn't see him for ages. I think we got in touch. I heard about his songwriting retreats in England. I think it was about 2009. And I, and I remember somehow being in touch via email about doing it. And it's like, nah, there's just no way I'm going to England right now. You know, I had two toddlers and it was just not a stage of life where I could be in another country and, you know, be gone 10 days. But we were just out of touch. And then uh, I was making this record and I wrote that song, Paris, France, not with Chris, with John Parrish, who I met at Miles Copeland's Castle Retreat um, in the 90s. And he and I had done a bunch of writing together. I had come to Bristol um, this was actually in a summer where I did bring my kids and, you know, we had a big Victorian house in Bristol, he still does where we stayed. And <laughs> it's funny because his kids were the same age. It was, it was very like, to me, to my American, it was like, chitty, chitty, bang, bang, you know, four <laughs> kids running around. <laughs> um, but yeah, we, we did some writing and he and I wrote a lot when I did my sometimes a circle record and, you know, he came and stayed in Laurel Canyon and then I came and stayed in Bristol. And one of those trips we wrote Paris France and we wrote it for a movie spec. Nothing happened with it. He was mostly singing the vocal and I was singing an octave from him, but it was a more male uh, dominated vocal in the mix, even though I was singing with him. And it was, it kind of had a hero's-ish, you know, thing going with cool guitars and cassiotone strings. And um, I always loved it. It was on my hard drive along with a lot of other old songs. And uh, that's one I should put on my, on my rarity CD is the demo of that. That would be fun. Oh, yeah. And yeah, because people hear the version now. Anyway, a friend of mine, Scott is a photographer who lives in desert hot springs and he wrote me you won't believe the job I got I just got a job taking photos of squeeze I was like really that's fantastic you know I guess somebody had dropped out they couldn't do the job they sent him along you know and so he was a photographer this gig that they were playing a couple years ago and I said if you see Chris Difford say hello for me 
And then next thing I know, there's a picture of Chris waving at me, <laughs> you know, that he had taken. And he said that he told Chris, I said, hi. And Chris, you know, took the picture waving back at me and said, you know, please say hello and give her my email. So at that point, I was in the middle of making a record and I think it was Dave, you know, who produced the record with Dave Way said, it'd be great to get Chris to sing on it. I said, yeah, it would be. And so I sent him, um, we didn't cut that song in. I sent him the demo and I said, would you be up for singing this with me? And he said he'd love to. So then we, you know, worked out the key long distance and, and cut it for the best key for the both of us to sing it in. And, and, you know, we weren't even in the same room. You know, I did it, sent it to him. You know, we were conversing with sending back and forth little demos and memos, iPhone memos in different keys. And uh, he did it in the UK and I did it in LA and that was that. But we, we've seen each other through his songwriting retreats that I've gone to the last two years in in the UK. So yeah, that's how that went down. In the in the video you guys seem very much in the same room. We are. We are. Yeah, that was so when I was there the first time for the retreat, I said, Hey Chris, while I'm there, since we're both there, can we make a video? And He's like, yeah, yeah, sure, let's do it. And so I threw it out there, and I was looking for a London-based video maker, and this young director sent me this treatment, which I loved. It was all very, like, fly around in a capsule above, you know, France, and um, it seemed very like an old movie, but I really wanted to do it. Chris agreed to it. And, you know, they were said they were going to build sets and it was, they were all doing it on a budget because they really wanted to do it artistically. And it wasn't until I got there that Chris said, we're going all the way bloody down at Cheltenham. And I was like, what do you mean all the way? He said, well, it's, it's you know, it's an eight hour drive. And I was like, what? And I thought Cheltenham was just, you know, a different borough in London, but Cheltenham is just like, it's a different part of England than London. And I mean, eight hours, if you live in California is you're still in the same state, but you know, in England, eight hours is you are in a different part of England um, by far. So he was just really so good natured and generous. And he is a good natured, generous bloke, I will say. Um, it was it was just great. So he he was literally doing Glastonbury with uh, I think Jules Holland. Well, maybe not. Maybe it was with Glenn. I can't remember. He was doing Glastonbury that year, and he he literally went from Glastonbury to do like a sound check, drove all the way to Cheltenham to do this video where he was sitting around a lot while I was trying on clothes and getting makeup. And, you know, I, I will say that, and he said he loved driving, so he didn't mind. Again, generous and good-natured. And I will say, you know, what ended up happening is the video, it wasn't as I pictured. 
it it was more it came off more like we were in a TV studio than it, I was picturing you know like some of the things that were sent in the treatment and it just didn't seem that that was coming across and I really felt when it was done and I saw the footage that we just didn't have it you know it just I felt like it needed a kind of fantasy rock and roll element to it. And, and then I gave it to um, Frankie Louise, who had edited some videos and shot some videos for me before, a director and friend here in L.A. who's from Australia and right now in Australia. And she worked so hard on it, and I thought she really did an amazing job. She pulled in all that vintage stuff of, like, people flying out of the car, and she brought back that element of, what it had promised to be in the first place, like us in the movie theater on the drive-in screen. And I thought it was fun. And yes, we were definitely in the same room. (laughs) And it looks like one of those videos from like the late eighties. I love the feel of it. Yeah. It's interesting when you say eighties, I think my entire experience of the 80s and ever since the word associated with the 80s was always like oh that's bad <laughs> oh <laughs> when someone says oh that's very 80s i'm like oh, that's that's a bad thing to say you really don't want to be associated with the 80s but i think maybe in this moment in time saying that is a good thing because oh, if you I... think about it a lot of those those videos in the 80s you know they were they were great I mean, they 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 were of a time, and the budgets were big, and you know, those were fun. The MTV era, right? That's kind of what you're saying, right? Because you know, you and I are the same age, and we we grew up, you know, when MTV came of, you know, when MTV sort of broke through. Uh, you know, like Duran Duran's "Hungry Like the Wolf" was like a, a total mini version of Raiders of the Lost Ark, you know, or like they had mm-hmm. budgets, and so there were these high concept videos and you know, aha's take on me was incredibly pioneering. Yeah. Those were amazing. Amazing. All of them. Yep. Um, and so like there's a, the animation that's used, uh, not maybe it's not animation, but that sort of look in this video reminds me of an all the best ways of the videos that, that I grew up watching. And, and uh, it looks, it looks kind of instantly classic to me. Well, I love that you feel that way. And, Frankie is amazing. She's amazing. I mean, she she literally just researched and found all that footage. And and it's all royalty-free, like, cartoons that are so old, you know, that you can use them. Um, Those little drawings, those, you know, the rowboat in the the lake, you know, the rowing to France, you know, rowing... Yeah, I mean, and she really made it, it was really something special. And and also, I I love the shot with Chris smiling in the beginning yeah. so much. You know, yeah. he, I, there was hardly any footage of him smiling. And he's wearing that polo shirt, you know, and looking kind of like serious. And I also, like, I didn't like a lot of the camera angles on me. And so I guess, a lot of the video was shot from one side. Anyway, it, it was it was a lot of work 
to turn it into what it was turned into. But in the end, Dale, who shot everything in, in Cheltenham and Frankie together, forged something that made an amazing video. Well, I like it because I feel like the video looks like what the song sounds like. Mm-hmm. And that's hard to capture. I mean, that's that's something that I think we saw a lot more when there used to be videos and people were thinking of videos, you know, first and foremost. Those were, like, essential back in, like, 1985. Um, so you would see a lot of videos that felt like the way the songs would feel. Uh, and this is one that, that does that. And I think it's so it's such a great clip. She did a great job. Amen to that. Amen to that. Okay, there's part one. Part two is totally different, which is why it made sense to break these up. Uh, you'll see what I'm talking about next week. Okay? Uh, in the meantime, check out louisegothen.com for all your Louise Gothen needs. Get her new record, listen to her podcast, you know, that kind of stuff. As for me, check out alexgreenonline.com. I have some live dates coming up where I'll be uh, sitting down with authors and talking about their latest books. So come on down and be a part of the audience for those events. Uh, a bunch of those coming up. Watch that space. Uh, as for the podcast, we're on Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, and iTunes. So subscribe, leave a rating, maybe a couple of stars if you have a few to spare. You know how it works. Uh, if you want to email me, please do so. Editor at StereoEmbersMagazine.com. Maybe there's somebody you want me to have on the program I haven't spoken to yet. It doesn't matter how big or small you think they are. Just tell me who it is, and I will go after them. Okay? All right. If you want to follow me on Twitter, at Ember's Editor will do the trick. And on Instagram, Ember's Podcast. Okay? All right. Now, next week, part two of the Louise Goffin chat. But to tide you over, here's that song we were talking about. This is Paris, France. Louise Goffin and Chris Difford of Squeeze. Enjoy it right here, and I will see you next week on Stereo Embers, the podcast. I like you.